great to see all of you again. If it's your first time here, welcome. We're so glad you're here. My name is Pastor Mike, and this is Image Church, so we're so glad you're here. Um, some people ask, where do we get that name Image Church from? Because there's not a ton of Image Churches out there, although I'm starting to see them pop up a little bit. But we get the name of our church from, well, this book called the Bible. You may have heard of it. Um, but it's a word and an idea and a theme that really starts in the very, very beginning and actually runs all the way through the Bible. One of the things, especially for me growing up in the church um, and then walking away, wasn't interested uh, in Christianity. I would say I was disinterested, to be honest. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, 31 flavors, Baskin Robbins, this, this is vanilla, I want chocolate. It wasn't, it wasn't that. I, I was disinterested. I was a little bit hostile, I would say, actually, um, to Christianity. And one of the ways I looked at the Bible is it's basically a book of rules. It's got a bunch of do not, do not, do not, do not, do this, do this, do this, do this. And that's basically how I saw the Bible. And as it turns out, that's actually how a lot of people see the Bible. They don't see it as a story so much as they see it as a list of religious rules that I got to keep. And if I don't, then God's mad and he'll send me to the hot place or something like that. Um, but actually, the Bible is a story. And one of the ways to tell the story simply is with that word image. In the very beginning, God says he made male and female in the image of God. And so right there, what we're saying is all human beings, everyone here this morning, regardless of who you are, where you come from, what your background is, your race, your ethnicity, your language, your culture, your age, your socioeconomic status, you are all made in the image of God. And I think that's the first step forward that I want to take as, as a Christian is, is affirm the humanness and the dignity and the worth of every human being. You don't have to be like me for me to be able to see and say that you are of infinite worth. I believe that's what the Bible does. And unfortunately, it's true in church history, there's been Christian movements and people and groups and denominations at times that have not always affirmed that. And even if they affirmed it in word, they did not affirm it in deed. And so I think it's so important that we recover that, especially today in an increasingly globalized culture where cultures that have been separated by language and geography and politics and religion for hundreds of years, if not millennia, are coming together in the world of politics and in the world of business. And so I think we need to recover the sort of universal scope of the Bible and of Christianity. And that begins with human beings, all of them being affirmed as being made in the image of God. We all share that in common this morning. But there's another aspect of that image that we all share in common. It occurs just a couple chapters later in Genesis. We know we refer to it in history as the fall, and it's this idea that human beings were made perfect in the image of God. No imperfection, uh, no, no sin of any kind. And we decided that we don't want to bear the image of God. We will create an image for ourselves. We will decide our own identity. We will not take our identity from you. We will make one for ourselves. And that's called the fall. And the history of the world has been people seeking to make God in their own image and make themselves into an image of their own desire. And so we also share that in common. Whether you're a Christian or not, we've been affected by that. And I know some people, they go, oh, well, that's an old story, and I don't know if it applies. Uh, honestly, I think this is one of the most practical and provable kinds of stories in the Bible because we all know that where you grew up affects who you are. What kind of family did you grow up in? Was your father present? Was your mother present? Did they love you? 
Did they mistreat you? These things shape the rest of your life. And even hardworking, educated, successful adults can struggle the rest of their lives with their identity on the basis of how they were raised. So the idea that what others have done, that is those who came before us, affect who we are, I think it's true to life. And the story of Adam and Eve in the fall basically just takes that story back to the beginning so that it becomes a universal story for all people. And then the story of of history and the story of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible is the story of people trying to come to terms with these realities. We're made in the image of God, and yet we're trying to create identities for ourselves, and it's just not working. And we're ending up with a very broken, violent, terrible world, even if in God's grace there's good that can come from that. And ultimately what happens is at some point in time in history, God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, in the world, whose Scripture says is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of God. He keeps the law perfectly for us in our place. And He dies on the cross and He rises again. And by faith in Him, what God is doing is He's restoring the image of God. So He's gathering people in from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And He's restoring the image of God through Christ. And He's taking history toward that end when Christ ultimately rules and reigns over every human heart. And we know those beautiful lines in Revelation, even those of you that don't maybe know the Bible very well, but there's the lines that say, and there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. That's that's where God wants history to go. And so we want to tell the story of human beings here in this church, and we want to look at the Bible that way. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, And I say all that as a preface to this because what Paul does in a span of just 12 verses is essentially sum up universal history. He talks about where everything has come from, where it is, and where it's going, but he does so through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so if you would, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to Ephesians 1. For everyone, we'll also have the passage up on the screen. Would you please follow along with me now as I read the Word of God? This is God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, 
that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning and we pray You would just shine a light into our hearts this morning. Lord, I just pray that we all here this morning would have open hearts and open minds. That we would be willing, if, if You are God, if You are real, if You are exist, that it is worth our time and attention to explore the possibility of what a life with You would look like. And so I pray You would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, You know that we have ideas, we have desires, we have arguments, we have questions, we have assertions, and we have beliefs, both true ones and untrue. And so through all that, Lord, I, I pray this morning You would just begin to make sense out of who Jesus really is and who we are and what the road for us would look like going forward. Lord, if there's any resistance in us, Lord, that is to our own detriment, I pray You would help us to overcome that resistance this morning. And I pray in all things that we would sense and know the love of God, that it is a loving, gracious voice that is calling us forward. And so I ask for a blessing now over this message in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the British archaeologist Howard Carter realized he had discovered the tomb of King Tutankhamun on November 1st, 1921, he actually did not see it or enter into it until three weeks later. How many of you could have done that? I know as a kid, if I saw my presence, I had a hard time, you know, waiting a day. I would try to, like, peel the tape ever so gently away, uh, being careful I didn't tear it. And then if I tore a little bit, I would try to even it, line it right back up so my parents had no idea that I tore open that present. I don't know how in the world finding something like this this great archaeological find, the tomb of an Egyptian king, and not going into it for three weeks. So why did he do that? It turns out that he wanted his financial backer, Lord Carnivan, to enter the journey inward with him. His financial supporter had made it possible for him to be there, and so he wanted to invite him along into this awe-anticipated moment. And so three weeks passed after finding it before they actually went to see what was there. And it's kind of funny because this is a risk. Because if you know Egyptology and you know the history of archaeology in Egypt, you know that many times archaeologists spend a lot of time and a lot of money uh, trying to locate a place, and when they get there, they find out tomb raiders had beaten them to the job and everything has been plundered. 
So he took a big risk. I don't know uh, how many of you remember. I think it was back in the 1980s. Does anyone remember when Geraldo Rivera was going to do a live TV special uncovering Al Capone's vault? Does anyone remember that? And I, in junior high, I was really interested in La Cosa Nostra. Joe, I know you are. And uh, interested in the Italian mob and things like that. So I'm like, oh, Al Capone, Alphonse Capone from Sicily, Scarface. Oh, I wonder what they're going to find, like bulletproof cars, tons of cash, you know, Tommy guns, all this kind of stuff. And it was completely empty. Do you remember that? It was a complete bust. He was kind of the laughing stock for a little while. And I think they found like some empty, you know, booze bottles on the ground in the dirt and there was nothing there. So this was a big risk, waiting these three weeks and making a big deal out of this because there could have possibly been nothing there. But nevertheless, he waits three weeks. And in his journal, he records the moment he enters in. He wrote this, quote, As we watched the debris of the doorway removed, all I saw was darkness. But after a candle was lit, we peered in and began to see one golden treasure after another. I was struck dumb with amazement, awe, and wonder." This is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul is guiding seekers into the hidden chambers of the Gospel with eyes at first blind to the riches of the Gospel. We hear spiritual treasures and we think, what is that? I want a real car. We see darkness. But through the illumination of Scripture and the Spirit, our eyes can be opened the way that Howard Carter's eyes were opened to the treasures of that Egyptian tomb. And we can behold the riches of the Gospel. And we see that the plan and purpose of God in these riches, in these treasures, is revealed with the light of the Spirit otherwise unseen. And so really, I think Ephesians is a very unique book. It's uh, one commentator named Warren Wiersbe. He's got a commentary on Ephesians, and his title for it is Be Rich. Because what he, he just sees this theme over and over of the riches of Christ, the riches of Christ, the treasures of Christ, and all these lofty things that seem to be beyond this world, and Ephesians focuses on all of this. So let's begin to explore, to enter in to this sacred room of the Gospel and the treasures that are there. Let's begin in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So Paul begins here with an exclamation of praise. In fact, it is as if he is bursting forth into spontaneous utterance as all 12 verses in English are actually one sentence in Greek. So, I don't know about English that you were taught, but I would have been marked down for doing this. This would have been called a run-on sentence. So, most English translations make either seven or eight sentences out of this, but in Greek, it's actually one long sentence. So in the one sense, you go, well, is that bad grammar? What's going on? But I think what you get 
And we also know that many times Paul would have his messages written down. So he would speak them orally and an amanuensis would write them down. And you can almost see that here, how when Paul is teaching, he's describing what we have in Christ, it's as if he, he can't contain himself. He can't just say, oh, matter-of-factly, this is what you've got, and this is what God did, and here's what He did next, A, B, C, D, and E. You can just see Him bursting forth, and it's just one treasure after another. That The joy of the things that Paul is teaching has not been lost on him. It's a sad thing when preachers of the Gospel preach as though the treasures they proclaim have been lost to themselves. And this happens. But as I was studying this passage myself, I felt like my heart was illuminated. Of course, I shouldn't be up here teaching if I don't feel like I know what I'm teaching. But on the other hand, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I have to completely confess that there is so much to learn. There is so much to continue to understand. And just diving into what Paul is revealing here through the Spirit, it was just causing me joy. Just this is unbelievable. On the one hand, if the Spirit doesn't touch my heart, this is not impressive at all. Heavenly places, spiritual gifts, like I can't buy anything with that in the real world. But by faith, if you see what's being offered to us here, it absolutely fills the heart with joy. And I echo Paul's sentiment here. And if you uh, ever get together for a little Christian trivia, dinner, pizza thing, this is the longest sentence in the New Testament. I just thought I'd throw out that random bit of trivia for you. Longest sentence in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit of meat here. I won't do this too much, but I'm going to do a little bit of meat here. I'm going to do a tiny little bit of Hebrew, tiny little bit of Greek, and I'm going to show you why the world matters about what I'm about to say of extreme significance here is the fact that Paul seems to be taking a common Jewish expression of praise used in corporate worship. He's taking these things and he's, this was used for the one God of Israel and he's expanding it to include Jesus. As scholar Clinton Arnold points out, We know from the first century there was a prescribed set of prayers for all Jews to pray every morning, afternoon, and evening called the 18 benedictions. Each of which, so all 18, each of which contained the phrase, Blessed are you, Lord. So for example, in Psalm 28.6, we see the refrain, Blessed be the Lord, Baruch Adonai. And Adonai is the uh, respectful way of pronouncing the divine name, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible done in the 3rd to 2nd century BCE, so they're going to translate that Hebrew phrase, that Hebrew expression of praise to the one God. So they take Baruch Adonai and they translate it Eulagetas kurios. So I want to show you something up there. So Baruch Adonai equals Eulagetas kurios in Greek. Of course, the New Testament is written in Greek. But here in verse 3, Paul says this. Listen to the key words. Eulagetas 
Hafeas kai pater tu kuriu, hemon iesu Christo. Let me show you what he just did. He took eulagetas kurios. Blessed is the Lord, the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And he expands it. He opens it up. So that eulagetas hafeas kai pater, blessed be the God and Father, hemon of our kuriu. Lord, the divine name, Yahweh, Yesu, Christu, Jesus Christ. He takes a monotheistic expression of Jewish praise for the one God and the one God alone. And he opens it up to include Christ and not only to include Him, but to take the one and only proper, personal, covenantal, divine name of God, Yahweh, and applies it to Jesus of Nazareth. No wonder Paul got in trouble with his Jewish colleagues who did not believe in Jesus. Because if they don't believe in Jesus, they are right to push back against Paul. Paul was right to see Christianity before his conversion as being an enemy of Judaism. And he most certainly did. We talked last week about Paul's biography, his background. He was not indifferent to Christianity as some of his contemporaries were. He knew that what Christianity was proclaiming, Christu Iesu Curiu, that if you go around saying that, and Jesus isn't Lord, then that is blasphemy. So think about this. When we ask ourselves, how in the world did Saul of Tarsus, a rabbi, very Jewish, trained in Jerusalem under one of the greatest Jewish teachers ever, Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel the Elder, an extreme zealot for his Jewish ancestry and Jewish monotheism, so much so that he was a persecutor and murderer of the followers of Jesus, seemingly without his conscience being troubled at all for doing so. Suddenly, in a single day, do an abrupt 180 and become Christianity's foremost missionary to, of all people, the Gentiles. Think about that. Like in the history of ideas, the, in, the history of philosophy, ideas take time to develop, right? Like you, you read the philosophers. I, I like philosophy, I like history, so I read all these different you know, thinkers throughout history, and they wrestle over ideas, they think, they incubate the ideas, and they go debate or dialogue with other philosophers, and then this pushes back against this, and this comes out, and uh, like Hegel said, there's thesis, antithesis, synthesis, so after arguments, and you can kind of see how ideas develop. There's a genealogy to ideas. There's seemingly no genealogy to the idea for Paul that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He's Yahweh. In one day. You don't just do that. You don't just turn on a dime. And it wasn't like Paul took a class. It's not like he sat down and he got his textbooks and his syllabus. All right, now, now we're going to talk about how Jesus is Lord and you should expand the Shema and you should expand all the monotheistic creeds of Israel to include Jesus and I'm going to teach you how somehow that doesn't violate monotheism. There was no intellectual development Paul had an encounter with Jesus. 
And I think this is so important because sometimes Christians, and again, there, there's a cognitive side of our faith. There's an intellectual side of our faith. And I'm so thankful for that. And I find it fascinating and interesting. But sometimes Christians think, or, or even opponents of Christianity, think this all boils down to a philosophy. And it's just about ideas. But that was not true for the Apostle Paul. He had an encounter with Christ. And it was that encounter, what modern people might call a religious experience. I don't mind calling it that, but that's sort of people that you know, are uncomfortable with that kind of thing. He had a religious experience where he encountered Christ. He was coming in contact with the living Jesus. And it's from there that his ideas begin to change. Not the other way around. And all this points to the veracity of what he said. That somebody who would go killing somebody one day would turn around and be willing to die for them the next. That is just not normal. It doesn't make any sense unless what Paul says happened, happened. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, encountered the risen Jesus. After encountering Jesus, Paul could confidently seemingly do the audacious, expanding a Jewish expression of praise for the one God and see that Jesus not only does not violate that praise, but He fulfills it. That is what we see in Saul of Tarsus. The answer to how could this have happened with Paul? How could he say such an audacious thing? The answer is that when Jesus was revealed, he believed the inner life of the one God, hidden from all eternity, was opened up and revealed to him so that Jesus could rightly be called Lord while at the same time holding on to the Jewish ideal of monotheism. So what we have beginning here and continuing all the way to verse 14 is what I would call a burgeoning Trinitarian doxology. To be sure, the word Trinity is not used here. And if you didn't know, the word Trinity is not used in the Bible. It's not a biblical word, but it's a biblical concept. It's a word that was created to protect and hold together the, the seemingly difficult and complicated truths about how one God can somehow exist in three persons. And so the Trinity doesn't explain away the mystery, it preserves it. And sometimes people, both Christians and opponents of Christianity, think the Trinity explains it away. No, it doesn't. It preserves the mystery inherent in the one God who opens Himself up, His inner life in Jesus. So to the Apostle Paul, in the advent of the Messiah, the inner life of God is opened up and hence, the activity of the one God is described in threefold form. The Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. We see a Trinitarian formula all throughout this passage. And to those to whom this mystery is revealed, God pours out, as Paul says, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, this word heavenly places is, uh, the word places is added, so most translations will have italics on places. That's added to make sense of it. Um, more literally, it's the heavenlies. And it's an interesting word because it's used five times in Ephesians and nowhere else in any of Paul's writings. 
So what does he mean by that? So in our lexicon or dictionary of what this word means, we're camping out in Ephesians to know what exactly Paul is talking about. For some people, when they hear about the riches of Christ and then heaven, you're like, oh, great, so I get nothing till I die. <laughs> like, that's, that's what you're telling me? That's not what Paul means by heavenlies here. What Paul means is not something that's distant, that's it's up, up somewhere else or after I die, but throughout the book of Ephesians, he used heavenlies to describe a spiritual realm that is actually present, but most often unseen. So when we talk about the riches of Christ, we're not talking about something that is of no benefit to you right now. And you just got to hold out and hold on and do your best and do good things and don't do bad because one day you'll get treasure. What he's actually saying is you already have it now. That you are a spiritual being. You are a body and a soul. And you're actually walking through spiritual realities all day long. But most often you don't have the eyes to see it. And so what he's doing is he's opening up our eyes to the reality that these blessings, these spiritual blessings, are real and they're present and we can walk in them now. But maybe if you're a little bit of a skeptic like me, I'm a little bit skeptical by nature, you say to yourself, well, that's not real. That's not real. Spirit, show me. Do you have it in there? Is it in your pocket? Hey guys, here's the spiritual blessing. You want to see it afterwards? It's show and tell. You know, it's like, what is that? I can't touch that. Well, this challenges our conception of what reality is. For example, are numbers real? If you ask a philosopher, most likely they'll tell you, well, it depends. If they're a nominalist, they'll tell you, no, there's no such thing as numbers. Because what are numbers? They're abstract ideas, aren't they? A number is, is not visible. If I do this, I'm not holding up the number one. I'm holding up a finger, just in case you didn't know. I just taught you all something, right? That's not the number one. That's a finger. We've taken an abstract, invisible idea that you cannot touch, cannot see, cannot feel, cannot hear, and we've assigned it to this. You understand that? So are numbers real? Well, they're real in a sense that many people don't understand. In some senses, you could even say numbers are more real or most real. Through abstract numbers that you cannot see or touch, you can form equations. Using equations, you can build machines. Through building machines, you can send men and women, human beings from planet Earth to the moon. So tell me, are numbers real? We have to open up our conception in this you know, materialistic culture that we have, where if I can't see it, can't hear it, can't feel it, it's not real. You don't really believe that. You just haven't thought this through. Numbers are real, but not in that sense. In the same way, these spiritual blessings are real. And just like that idea of numbers, you might not see them, hear them, feel them. If you apply them, God's equations, promises to your life, if you apply them and act by them, you will see real world results. People will see a man or woman changed by the power of the Spirit of God that is tangible. The effects are tangible. Although the equations are not visible. Jesus supports this exact line of thinking to His first century audience in the Gospel of John chapter 3. You know where I'm going. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You hear the wind 
but you can't see it. You can't control it. You don't know where it's going. And so is the one who is born of the Spirit. Is the wind real? Well, I can't see it. You can never see the wind. But when you see a tree moving, what do you know? The wind is moving and I know it by its effects. So it is with spiritual heavenly blessings. They are real. They are present. You can't see them, but you can see them through their effects on human lives. This is why Paul can tell the Thessalonians that I don't need letters of recommendation as others do because you are my letters of recommendation. You are living letters, a living book, a living Bible, known and read by all men. That is the proof of the Spirit. Somebody wants to know Jesus is alive? I would point to the Apostle Paul. How did that happen if Jesus isn't real? And for some of you here today, that's your story, your testimony. How in the world did you end up here today? How in the world did you ever come to Christ? Don't make the mistake of assuming when you go to a church, oh, these people just were born to be here. No, they weren't. They were born, born again in order to be here. For some of us, we wanted nothing to do with the church. We hated the church. It was irrelevant. It was bad. It was oppressive. It was this. It was that. It was hypocritical. Wanted nothing to do with it. And yet we are here this morning. And that is because we're not just doing religion. We're not just doing churchianity. It's because we encountered the risen Christ. And we said that it's worth following Him. And I don't care what happens or who's going with me or who's not or what anybody says. And guess what? Yeah, I'm going to find hypocrites in the church. And I'm going to find people who are going to take advantage of me. And I'm going to find people who backstab me and gossip about me and leave me when I need them. And I don't care because I'm following Jesus. He's the reason I'm here. We can see the power of the Gospel through changed lives. And so we are going to see that those who put their trust in Jesus as Messiah and Lord, God pours out these spiritual blessings in threefold form. Past, present, and future. For the past blessings... And how you can have a past blessing. That's an interesting philosophical idea. Let's look at verses 4-6. through six. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Here Paul impacts the blessings of eternity past. It's an interesting idea. This is big stuff. He unpacks the blessings of eternity past by discussing the Christian doctrine of election. Election is the idea that in eternity, outside of time, indeed before time, because we know time is a created thing, God chose to save. This doctrine has perhaps more than most been subject to all kinds of speculation garnering anything from ridicule on one hand to praise on the other. But if you truly trust in Jesus for salvation, what Paul is saying here, what I want you to take away from this, is it's not philosophical arguments and trying to figure out how it all works. This is pastoral. This is for you. This is for your heart. This is so that you can live confidently in a changing, difficult world. 
And it's the idea that if you trust in Jesus for salvation, then your relationship to God is more real and secure than anything in creation, including the very existence of the world itself. That's what that meant. This chose in Him before the world was made. What that communicates. Before we start, well, how does that work? I'm going to take it apart and understand election and predestination and free... It, it, like, stop. Just, just stop. Put that aside. Whatever. Have fun with that later. That's not why Paul is saying this. What he wants you to know is that your chosenness in Christ, your relationship to Christ, though at moments even, oh yes, of your Christian life, you will find seasons where, am I going to make it? Am I going to hold on? I don't know that I can keep going. doesn't matter how many ministries I've served in, how many churches I've been in, how much of the Bible I've memorized and could spat out to you. I'm in a season where I don't know if I'm going to make it. And the things around me look more real than my own faith. And this is when Paul teaches the doctrine of election. If you are in Christ... Your relationship to Him is more secure and more real than anything in this world. Take a look at this building. Does this look real? Does it look secure? It'll fade one day. You look at your house, it's going to fade. You're going to need to repair your roof. The foundation's going to have problems. You look at your body. You're going to get older. You're going to start having chronic diseases. You're going to deal with these things. You're going to have family leave you. Everything is going to go. What Paul is saying, all these things we look to for security are less real than your relationship to Jesus Christ. And that is what he wants us to know. That is what election is for. It is to comfort the believer in times when we believe that we just can't hang on to Jesus any longer. It's just too hard. And Paul's answer is, well, guess what? Jesus is hanging on to you. And that is good news. That is gospel for me. So he decided, you know, for some people, they get into the theorizing of this, and they'll say, hey guys, an eternity passed when God was sitting around twiddling his thumbs in eternity. He decided to predestine one group of people to heaven and another he chose not to. Like, I've literally heard people talk about election that way, and I think it's horrible. Rather, what Paul is saying, he's starting in the present, not in eternity past. That's philosophical, theological. He's starting in the present. He says, he chose us. He chose us. It begins where you are, in this seat this morning. It begins right here. In other words, the doctrine of election begins with those who come to place their trust in Christ. And having placed their trust in Christ, they enter into the glorious truth like Howard Carter as he entered in and suddenly could see the glories of the treasures. Election is not something that bars some people from getting into heaven and forces some people to go to hell. Rather, it's something that you discover after you're already in and you see the treasures and the riches of what God is doing. The point is to give us comfort that no matter what comes our way, Nothing, nothing can take us away from our relationship to God in Jesus Christ. And it's this kind of doctrine of election, not another, this kind, that is behind Paul's famous statement in Romans 8.31-39, through 39, where he says this, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He give us also everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? 
No one. For God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And He is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the Scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears of today, nor worries about tomorrow, nor even the powers of hell itself can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what Paul wants you to know. You don't have to unravel election and predestination and free will and all these different theories. What you unravel is quite simple. Do I trust in Jesus as my Lord? If you can say yes in your heart, I trust in Jesus as Lord, then this applies to you and that's all you need to know. And if you don't yet believe in Jesus, you don't go to the doctrine of election, well, that's because I'm not allowed to believe or something like that. No. This doesn't even come up until you make a decision to follow Jesus or not. So this this choosing is meant to be of comfort to us amidst the trials and tribulations of life. And not only that, it's meant to remind us of our purpose in salvation. Namely, as Paul says here, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Sometimes people that believe in predestination, again, I think it's a particular variety, um, have been referred to as the frozen chosen. Some people have said, if you believe this doctrine of election, well, if God elected me, then I don't need to do anything. I can sin my brain. I can live like hell and go to heaven. Well, look at what Paul says in election. What were you chosen for? There's a purpose. If you were chosen, it was that you live a holy and blameless life. So understanding your chosenness means that you persevere, you have a purpose, and it's who you are. It's about becoming like Jesus more than anything else, more than the job you do or don't do or your physical health or what's going on with your family or money situation. My purpose is not those things. Those are auxiliary to my purpose. My purpose is to be Holy and blameless in Jesus. That's my purpose. To follow Him all of my days. And we are promised that even when we stumble or falter or say to ourselves, gosh, I think my doubt outweighs my faith, we hear this voice of God saying, I have chosen you. And we are in the hand of God and in Jesus' own words that He has us in the grip of His hand and no one can cause us to perish. Look at verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. So here Paul explores the riches of grace as in Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven. I think most people know that. Even people who are not religious, who are from different parts of the world, they've probably heard about Jesus. They probably know that Christianity is, has something to do with the forgiveness of sins. But many people don't realize that the plan of God includes that, but it is more than that. Not only has God forgiven our sins if we're in Christ, but it says He lavishes His blessings on us as His sons and daughters. And not only that, Paul says, He discloses His plans and purpose with us. Jesus said this to the followers, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. For a servant does not know his master's will. God has opened up and revealed, hey, this is what I am doing. God is forgiving sins, but He's doing more than that. And that plan is namely, at this point in history, since the advent of Christ, not only is God reversing the curse of sin in Adam, but He is reversing the curse at Babel and gathering all the nations into one new people in Jesus. The Christian church should be an all-nations church because that is what God is doing. That is the significance of Pentecost. That is the significance of the gift of tongues. It's not just a neat little trick to show who has the Spirit and who doesn't and we're of this brand of Christian. It is a huge signal about the plan of God. That just as God is reversing the curse in Adam, so the curse of languages that scatters the peoples and separates them through the Spirit. God is bringing back people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together as a new people in Jesus. And this is at the heart of the Gospel and the heart of the church. And I have not even begun to unpack what Paul is about to say about the multi-ethnic, multicultural nature of the Christian church. God is gathering everyone in through the church. And it is our mission to gather those in, not just gathering people like you, gathering people unlike you, Gathering people that there maybe there's hostility towards some people, or you have hostility towards them. And the gospel is about bringing people together in love and peace and hope. He says in verses 11 and 12 In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. The New King James here may not have made the best translation. The single Greek verb rendered here as we have obtained an inheritance, klerao, can be alternately translated as in Him we were made an inheritance. So the question in the Greek, and it can be either, did we obtain an inheritance? Or are we an inheritance that God Himself obtained? The Old Testament seems to support the latter. We are the inheritance that God obtains. If you look at Deuteronomy 32.9 in the Greek, it says this, 
For Yahweh's portion is his people, and Jacob is his allotted clay ra'o, his inheritance, his special people. This seems to indicate the Apostle Paul's conviction that not only Jewish believers, but all those in Jesus the Messiah now constitute God's kleros, His special chosen people. And lastly, verses 13 and 14. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. That idea of a seal is the idea of God's authority being stamped on the life of the believer, authenticating that we belong to God, that we are empowered by God, that we have received God's blessing, but also that we await His return. And we have spiritual blessings, but He has more to give us. And the Christian Gospel says not only is God bestowing us blessings in this life, but though we may die, yet shall we live. Salvation is not complete if God saves disembodied souls but leaves their bodies to rot. But rather, He raises us up with Christ and we will live together with Him in a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be God's people forever. This is the Gospel story. The riches of Christ. The treasures that Paul himself, who once not only was ignorant of, but despised, but through the Spirit has been revealed to him and he is sharing with us. And if we would give our lives to Jesus, we too could see God cast a light on the treasures that could be ours. And so it's my prayer that we will do that. This morning, let us pray. Lord, we come before You this morning and we thank You so much that salvation is by grace and not by works. There's no boasting here. If we want to boast in what great moral people we are, then we exclude ourselves from the Kingdom of God. For the Kingdom of God is perfect and no one can enter in who is not also perfect. And so, Lord, I pray that we would simply admit the obvious this morning. We are not perfect. We are all sinners. We have all failed to do the good You've called us to do at times. And we have all done some of those things You've told us not to do. And so I pray there would be a freedom here, a liberty to just confess that we need You. We are people in need of a Savior. The only thing that will keep us out of Your kingdom. It's no sin that we have committed, but it's hanging on to our self-righteousness. It's the refusing to confess and admit and to see our salvation lies in Jesus. So I just pray this morning, no matter where we are, who we are, where we're coming from, I just pray that You would speak to us this morning. Touch our hearts. And that we would get to actually experience the reality of these riches of the Gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.